Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, November the 13th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Before we start today, I just want to remind you that our next Inside Politics live event takes place next Thursday, which is November the 19th. It's happening at 7pm. And in that crunch week for negotiations on the future trade relationship between Britain and the EU, I'm going to be joined by our London editor, Dennis Staunton, along with Gideon Rackman, the Chief Foreign Affairs commentator with the Financial Times, to discuss the UK's future place in the world, what it means for Ireland as well. And I'm also delighted to confirm that we will also be joined by Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy at Cambridge University. So to join us for that live video discussion, just go to irishtimes.com slash Brexit, and the price of admission is €20 Euro, or it is just €10 Euro if you're an Irish Times subscriber. So remember that is happening next Thursday the 19th and to book your ticket the address is irishtimes.com slash Brexit. Now, I'm joined today by our health editor, Paul Cullen, and also by our political editor, Pat Leahy, because COVID-19 remains really the defining issue facing the country and indeed the world. And there has been a lot going on in recent weeks and indeed in recent days, which may affect how the pandemic unfolds in Ireland and elsewhere and how we decide that we're going to cope with it. Paul, can I go with you first and maybe with the big picture news item of this week? The big ticket item was obviously this announcement uh, of successful trials of a vaccine. Yes, uh, it came out on Monday morning by press release from the manufacturer Pfizer, and it really electrified the the whole discourse around around uh, COVID nineteen. Um, obviously, a lot of people are waiting for good news, and and this seemed like the good news. Um, there's a lot of money involved as well, uh, too, and and there's a lot of competition as well because there's so many different rival vaccines and and now Pfizer seem to have stolen a march or got ahead of the other ones. Um, I, a few points, uh, I, I can't claim to be a vaccine expert, but um, I think what really got people was this um, assertion that based on very limited data, I have to say, that the vaccine that they're testing is over 90% effective. And uh, when you consider that the bar for effectiveness that being set by regulators was 50%, this is great news. You can't uh, argue with that if it comes... Uh, to pass, um, because it means that uh, those taking the vaccine um, have a very high expectation that it will work for them. Um, now, uh, and the other good news, I suppose, as well, is that so far there are no safety issues arising um, from the uh, thirty or 40,000 people who've taken part in the trial. So I would prefer if we got our news from our regulators rather than by press release from drug companies, but that's the way it's going to work. And there's going to be a lot of this in the months to come because there are a few other contenders who are um, very near uh, to having uh, products ready towards the end of phase three trials. Um, you Obviously, there are caveats around this, loads of them. Um, uh, in the case of this particular vaccine, we've heard, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about the um, transportation requirements, very, very cold, uh, minus 70 degrees. So that obviously puts uh, the supply chain under pressure and the fact that it has to be given in two doses uh, separated by three weeks. So that also creates uh, a challenge, but nothing insurmountable, I think. Um, As we know, too, um, 
obviously there's going to be a worldwide clamour for a vaccine that works. And uh, the EU and the United States government and, and, and various governments around the world have uh, been in negotiation with the various manufacturers. And um, we heard from the EU this week that they had reached agreement uh, for a supply of 300 doses. So I presume that's a hunt for 150 million people um, of the Pfizer vaccine should it come to pass. So, um, you know, uh, yes, this is great news. Uh, it's not immediate news. Um, in terms of rollout, uh, I can't see how there would be any meaningful rollout um, this year uh, and even into early in next year. And perhaps when we're talking later about the phasing of uh, what's going on with surges and so on, um, you know, we'll talk more about that because it does, um, it will have a bearing on, on what our future policy is in relation to controlling the virus. My understanding, I mean, this is a politics podcast, obviously, so I'm driving outside my lane a little bit in terms of in terms of this sort of subject matter. But is that um, if the success of the of, of this vaccine is proven to be the case, we can expect a couple of the other ones to come down the pipeline pretty fast because they're they're also based on what is quite cutting edge technology around bio uh, bioscience and um, genetics and, and RNA, which is essentially what they're taking to to to. Uh, to create this platform, which which is the basis for the vaccine. Yes, in other words, if this platform works for Pfizer um, and its partner in Germany, then it's going to work for some of the other people who are uh, taking this approach. Um, yes, but we're, as I say, we're operating on limited data, uh, data and we're not hearing from the regulators yet. Um, some of the contenders are taking the same approach without getting into too much of the detail. Some of them are using this novel approach um, and others are using more traditional approaches, which... Uh, on the face of it would seem a safer bet in terms of if it's worked for other vaccines, then it should work for this one. And we know how, how to store and transport it and, and administer it. And we know its safety profile and so on. So, but I mean, as an each way bet, that's pretty good, you know. So the novel technology is uh, showing signs of success. And then we have other products based on more traditional technology. Now, there has been no vaccine for a coronavirus and uh, even our flu vaccines aren't great. So, you know, let's uh, let's not uh, get ahead of ourselves, I suppose. But I suppose the key number really, isn't it, is that 90%, which is, if, if proves to be the case, is just way ahead of expectations and just changes the fundamental mathematical calculations which underlie modelling things like herd immunity, for example. Yeah, exactly. Um, really, I, I thought the bar was very low um, at 50%. So if you, if you were taking a vaccine uh, that only half worked, for example, then... Uh, what exactly are you doing? You know, so it, once you've taken this vaccine, it's a psychological uh, response that you probably become a bit more complacent and you think that you're protected and you go out and about. But if, if you're only getting half 50% protection, then you're actually perhaps putting yourself at risk. And you're also putting uh, the rest of the people at risk by potentially transmitting a virus that you didn't know that you could protect, that you thought you could protect yourself against. But if you're getting into 90%, that's, that's really uh, very high levels and, and that's, it, that's in conformity with the best vaccines we have for other uh, serious illnesses. And it allows us to compensate for the fact that not everybody's going to take this vaccine. There will be some resistance at some point. You can still achieve, one might hope, quite high levels of, of, of take-up among the population as a whole. And with 90%, that could achieve the kind of thresholds that are required to, to start really suppressing the disease. Yeah, I see it fitting into the jigsaw of the solution to this situation because what we have is obviously um, um, we don't have a vaccine at the moment but we do have more and more people who have experienced the disease and therefore have some sort of short-term immunity so that will also play into it um, and then there are people who are 
who will shield, uh, hopefully, and they should probably continue to shield for quite some time unless they get protection from a vaccine. Um, but we do, as you mentioned, we do have, we, we will have to address the issues of vaccine hesitancy. It will be, there will be vaccine resistance, there's no doubt about that. Um, and a lot of questions will be asked of any new product that comes on the market, and rightly so. Um, but the wider issue is one of vaccine hesitancy, where people are reluctant um, to take something that's new or, or that they perceive that their risk is, is quite low. Uh, and some of those, in, in many cases, the risk is low, but they may have to be tr- convinced that uh, they, society more generally would benefit from them taking the vaccine to protect others. Yeah, it was interesting. I was listening to a scientist um, um, this morning talking about this, and he was talking about, yes, there is a certain amount of unknown in such a um, such a new technology, but that if you were to measure up the risk, he as a scientist would say that he the the risks from what we know so far even about long covid were you to were you to contract long covid he says that those that's a much higher risk factor if he were weighing up the decisions between um risking that or taking a vaccine yeah i'm yeah i'm not sure about this long covid is increasingly attracting attention and um we we don't know enough about long COVID. Um, uh, I've seen figures quoted, and when I drilled into the figures, uh, long COVID was defined as any symptom that lasted more than twenty eight days. That's not for me a long and long enough term analysis of that particular condition. Undoubtedly, um, there is an issue around uh, the longer term effects from COVID nineteen from people who uh, overcome it, e- even when they haven't had a serious initial uh, experience of the disease. Um, but I think it's far too early to be making um, sweeping statements about the impact of, of long COVID. Um, it's something to be factored in and it'll probably be used uh, as, a, uh, as a, 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 um, an argument for persuading people to take the vaccine. But um, I, I just think it is too early to, to make pronouncements on long COVID uh, as we stand. It's not unusual from people uh, suffering from any respiratory or viral illness, um, not to suffer sequelae or, or consequences or, um, that uh, that last for a period of weeks or months or possibly up to a year. And probably uh, certainly anybody who's suffering anything after a year is, has got a a, a uh, particular health condition that needs to be addressed uh, uh, and collectively in the case of COVID-19, if, if that's what's happening. But um, certainly from talking to frontline doctors, their their views are um, they're not bullish about it. I have to say, um, so many of them anyway. Now there, are, but against that, there are you know there are studies there that are pointing to areas of concern. Um, as, as you said, we're going to talk a little bit later about the, the the reality of what this might mean over the next over the course of the next year as we move into this 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 very new phase of of dealing with the pandemic. But just one question, because I've heard a lot about. A lot of optimistic prognoses about rollout. Um, should this uh, pass the, the necessary um, the necessary governmental regulatory mechanisms over the next over the next couple of weeks? I've heard people, you know, reputable people, say that they expect to see rollout beginning in December and ramping up into January, um, starting with the mo- most vulnerable populations, perhaps people in care homes and and things like that, moving on to frontline health workers with a situation with a much greater rollout by by spring, by the middle of spring. That seems optimistic to me. How does it seem to you? Well, obviously, the first step in that chain is is approval for a product. Um, we know that the manufacturer is already making doses, large numbers of doses, and says, 
it will supply large amounts of the drug uh, to around the world even uh, before the end of this year. However, I've seen different quo- different figures quoted for what Pfizer can offer uh, from 100 million to 50 million and so on. So uh, I'm taking that with a pinch of salt. Um, I, I, in answer to your question, I think it's slightly optimistic, but um, we have seen, like if you if you look at the the uh, enterprise of developing a vaccine, we've seen that fast-tracked. Uh, as you know, uh, up to now, no vaccine has been developed in shorter than four years, and usually it takes 10 to 15 years. So we've seen that uh, sped up uh, to a massive degree. So there's no reason not to believe, given the level of, of enterprise, the level of incentive in terms of profit, um, and the level of cooperation internationally, that um, we, we, we won't see records broken in terms of, of uh, supply chain and, and, and delivery to people. Pat, if I could go to you, are there, uh, I wouldn't say champagne glasses clinking government buildings, but is there a sense perhaps that um, it's time now to readjust timeframes in terms of thinking about the, about the sort of the, the economic supports that have been put in place and the, the logistical elements and the strategic elements for how the government is going to deal with the pandemic and its consequences next year? Is there some sense that they might have to be adjusted perhaps in a positive way? I don't think so, to be honest, Hugh, at least not yet. I mean, the the government's, the strategy that it is undertaking at the moment was, has been for some time based on the expectation uh, that there would be a vaccine sometime next year. Now, this may be coming, uh, the, the, the news this week may indicate that that development may be coming sooner than uh, than had been hoped. But I don't think uh, that it will change the government's fundamental approach. I think in, 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 in two ways it influences. And if you think about, you know, if you think about the, the, the range of possible responses that governments can take to the pandemic, at the one, one extreme, there's the zero COVID uh, option and at the other extreme there's the kind of herd immunity option. The Irish government is somewhere in between those two absolutes. Now that does give us the uh, the model that we've talked about here before which is lockdown, open up, lockdown, open up in which restrictions are going to be uh, a part of our lives for the foreseeable future, at least until the vaccine is widely distributed. But I think that that approach isn't going to change for the government. What it may do, I think, in 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 two respects, is uh, it may actually bolster the government's uh, it may bolster the government's um, adherence to that model. In that. If more lockdowns are required, or at least the tightening of restrictions after the Christmas opening up, which is what is anticipated, but is the thing that is terrifying many people in government that you've got to go back to restrictions in January, I think they will be more bearable with the vaccine much more clearly on the horizon than it is now. It also means that the economic cost of further lockdowns or at least further restrictions will be, uh, I think, considered to be more bearable because, again, it is more definitively for a short, uh, a short term. So um, I don't think it'll change the, oh, in answer to your question, I don't think it'll change the overall approach but I think it will uh, encourage 
uh, aspects of it, such as a return to some restrictions after Christmas, if that is what is required um, uh, after a period of opening up. Paul, how are we performing in this phase of the of the pandemic now? I mean, we're not alone among European countries in having a significant second wave hitting us in the autumn into winter period. Um, we are not alone in reintroducing pretty strict restrictions, although not as strict as they were back in the back in the spring. We're not alone in seeing a surge of cases, but they, it seems to be plateauing or declining at this point. Oh, we're 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 performing amazingly. Um, there's no there's no word for it uh, apart from that, Hugh. Um, we are best in class for um, ending surges of coronavirus cases. Uh, second time we've done this, in fact. Um, we, we weren't able to stop the second surge, but then neither was most, most other places in Europe. Um, but we are currently, along with Finland, the very best in uh, the countries covered by the European Centre for Disease Control um, in terms of the fall in the number of cases and now in terms of our overall incidence. In fact, uh, we've just moved from the red zone to the orange zone and there's hardly anywhere in Europe that's in an orange zone. So we've done really, really well. Um, the question is, how come we've done so well? And that's what we're not so sure about because we've had a lot of different types of restrictions and levels of restrictions. We've had level two, level three, level five, level three plus. Uh, look, we've had local ones, we've had uh, national ones, we've had tweaks and so on. So it makes it very hard to to work out uh, what what exactly worked and what uh, what didn't work. Um, the the officials in Neffet are quite clear. They're saying that level three we found uh, was sufficient to put us on an even keel. But by that stage, uh, a month or two ago, we had too many cases and we needed level five to get down to, um, uh, they're, they're talking about an or naught of, of uh, reproduction number of 0.5. And that will get us down to 50 or 100 cases a day by the start of uh, December. Um, now, not everybody agrees with this analysis. Uh, many people would say, would point out that actual ca- cases and or not values peaked well before we introduced uh, level five. Um, in response, uh, the chief medical officer has talked about, well, actually, there was anticipatory behavior by people uh, before the introduction of level five. In other words, he was arguing that although we only introduced level five, I think it was the 21st of October, People knew it was coming and they started pulling down the hatches and being more careful uh, as, as a psychological re- response to the, to the uh, impending uh, change in restrictions. Anyway, it's a bit of an over and back and um, there won't be absolute clarity on it because you can probably argue both sides. But um, it is encouraging in, uh, that uh, it seems to be accepted by the public health officials who obviously have been driving a lot of this policy, that level three is sufficient to, to hold the line. So that if we do get back down to low numbers, low numbers of cases in early December, um, level three should be sufficient to keep us there. Now, there's one problem, and that's Christmas, which, of course, is a special time of the year, special time for socialising, special time for travel. Um, and so that raises a whole uh, separate set of issues and challenges, which haven't been, you know, the, the response to which haven't been uh, set out yet, but will be set out in the weeks to come before the, the level five measures end on the 1st of December. And we're already seeing smoke signals from some members of the government, for example, Leo Varadkar this week, Pat, about what level three Christmas surprise might involve. Yes, that's right, you. I mean, Tanisha Leo Varadkar yesterday in the Dáil talking um 
that that people sh- saying that people shouldn't book flights home for Christmas. Kind of a harder message then delivered by Tony Houlihan, um, a number of a uh, number of hours later when he talked about travelling home for Christmas as uh, non-essential travel. Some eyebrows raised in government about that, um, because that is a decision uh, they people in government feel more properly uh, that would be made by them on the advice uh, they would consider the advice of the. Uh, public health experts, of course, but it is put to me forcefully by uh, a couple of people that uh, that these are decisions to be made by government. And I think that, you know, that goes back to the ongoing difficulties in the relationship between NEFED and the decision makers uh, in government. And just going back to what Paul was talking about there about the, you know, what a you know, the, the restrictions or the level of restrictions that gave rise to this dramatic fall in uh, in the number of cases that we've seen in recent weeks. And I, I wrote a little bit about this um, in, in last Saturday's paper, that it is very keenly uh, appreciated in government that the, the cases peaked uh, on the 19th of October, that was the highest number of cases we've ever had at, I think, 1,284. And that was the day that the government decided to introduce level five. Um, so had the government, another way of looking at this, I think, is had the government, and again, this is something that's keenly appreciated in government, had the government done on the 19th of October what it did uh, two weeks earlier when NEF had made its previous push for the introduction of a level five lockdown, and said, no, let's wait a week. Then a week later, it would have become apparent that the cases were uh, beginning to fall off. All of which is a rather long-winded way of saying that there are people in government who think that level five was unnecessary, that cases had begun to come under control uh, before the effects of level five were introduced. And as such, I think... While there is nobody talking about getting out of level five prematurely, I think that they, you know, I think that that difference of opinion between the government and NEFET as to the desirability of level five back three weeks ago is something that can't be ignored when they come to make the decisions about the Christmas restrictions. That having been said, there are two big and there are multiple conversations going on in government uh, in both a structured and an unstructured way about this uh, at the moment, as I understand it. Um, there are two big concerns that the government has. One is about the uh, about allowing foreign travel into the country and the traditional um, influx of people coming home for Christmas. And the other is about the prospect of opening uh, opening the pubs over Christmas. And I think that there is currently considerable attention being given in government as to how to mitigate those two threats, whether that means that pubs will be able to open only in a very restricted way or not able to open at all. Those decisions haven't been made yet. Similarly with foreign travel, it seems unlikely that it will be ruled out altogether. But I think you will hear uh, ministers and public health experts repeating those messages that we heard yesterday in more forceful terms over the coming weeks. 
along the lines of don't come home unless you absolutely have to. And what about all the stuff of families gathering, different groupings of different people in different households within days of each other, all those kinds of issues? Because some people have, have, have suggested that there's been an over-concentration on shutting down businesses, whereas in fact a lot of the problems that arose in the second half of the summer were actually because of social contacts within households. Yeah, that issue is under um, is under pretty lively consideration behind the behind the scenes, as I understand it, uh, at uh, at the moment. And those decisions haven't yet been taken, but they will have to be taken pretty quickly because I think the government will have to have. I mean, next week it's due to have its four week review of the um, uh, of the existing. Uh, lockdown. No expectation anywhere in government that that will be lifted, as I say. But I think by then they will have to have pretty much underway a plan for the reopening. Um, I think on that point that you make about, you know, where are the infections coming from? How dangerous is retail versus gatherings in people's homes? There is, and the Taoiseach has mentioned this um, in the Dáil, and I've been speaking to a couple of people about it, that there is a an exercise underway uh, at present. Um, I, I think it, uh, it, it's Ernst & Young that are helping officials process some of that data as to where the principal danger for um for the spread of infections comes it's interesting to me that as far as i'm aware that is being done under the auspices of the department of the Taoiseach rather than in the department of health or by nefed itself and i think that signals a sort of a shift um in in, in terms of where the locus of decision making power will uh will be when it comes to the uh, the what sort of restrictions will be in place over the Christmas uh, period? One of the other things, um, just to finish the point, one of the other things that I'm 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 hearing is that there may be a graduated opening up, so that you may go to level to some form of level three on the first of December, but there may be a further relaxation. Then are some aspects of a regular level three uh, restrictions may be eased maybe just before Christmas for a period of a fortnight or so, or, or, or 12 days, presumably. So Chris Ray's driving home for Christmas will be banned from the airwaves until December the 21st or or, or something of that sort. But listening to Pat there, um, it strikes me that a couple of the key elements there are, are bits that we haven't done well on in the past and that have come under criticism. One is this question of having sufficient testing to find out where infection is actually really spreading. There was quite a lot of contention about that, you know, a, a month or two ago. The other one is in relation to international travel and the the lack of any, you know, enforcement really, or even monitoring of of um, you know, people restricting their movements or quarantining or whatever is required of them, depending on where they're coming from. Has that really got any better since? Well, on the, on the first point on testing, we, we actually do have enough testing at the moment. Uh, we, we Our capacity is good. Turnaround time could be a bit faster, but couldn't it always? To be honest, uh, there's a general point to be made about testing is that the ideal test for this disease hasn't been found yet. Um, it's a mess. You know, it's expensive, it's laborious, it takes time, it has to go to a lab and so on. There are problems with false negatives and false positives, and that's universal across the world, you know, so everybody's struggling with that. But uh, at least we do have the capacity. Um, we seem to be resistant to using that capacity 
when the overall demand drops so that we don't go off hunting for it uh, in specific areas. And I think we should do more of that. Um, I think I, I wonder is that for budgetary reasons. Um, on the international travel, I was at the NEFID briefing last night and I asked uh, the chief medical officer, Tony Hullohan, I said, well, how would you be about an Irish person coming home from Finland? Finland has got the lowest incidence in Europe, it's well below ours. It's been like that for, for yonks. Um, so, uh, and it wasn't something he would countenance. He didn't want to talk about specific countries. But basically, there's a, a one size fits all. Uh, approach, don't do it, basically, which, as during the summer, ignores the fact that uh, the levels um, can vary hugely from country to country. And there is an industry out there that, uh, you know, is is is, is uh, dying, effectively, the aviation industry. Um, so, um, and, 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 and another question that came up in the briefing for myself and from others um, was the obvious fly in the ointment, or sorry, the, the blind spot of the officials and of the government, which is the nearest border here is with Northern Ireland. Now, um, I looked back uh, for an article I'm writing at the moment. I wrote a problem about difficulties in cross-border cooperation in co- uh, coronavirus on February the 8th. That was three weeks before the virus even came to Ireland. We've been told ever since that the cooperation is great between North and South. And yet um, the uh, level of, 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 you know, of outcome and um, the issues that have arisen between the two jurisdictions has yo-yoed uh, right through the summer and it is worse now than it's ever been. As you know, the incidence in the north is over four times what it is here. Uh, as you know, um, the uh, executive up there is going to let cafes open for next week and even though their their lockdown is only half worked. Um, so there's a real problem there. That's the nearest border. That's the live border that we have. And yet nobody is talking about this. Um, and you cannot um, in conscience tell people um, who want to be reunited, who live abroad, Irish people or whoever they are, um, and who live abroad and want to be reunited with their families, that you can't come home and yet say nothing about travelling uh, uh, up to Belfast uh, or back down to Dublin. Uh, I just cannot understand that. Well, I can understand it, actually, I suppose. It goes to, it goes to a, a, a core value in, in politics that uh, came with us right through the 20th century. But it is a real problem, and it is a real problem for... Um, the solution next year after this um, surge is dealt with because um, as we can see the highest levels of cases are uh, in Donegal along the border Um, and although officials don't want to hear about words like civ um, uh, you know it's it's common sense that that some of the um, high levels that we've seen in border counties um, is uh, related to what's going on in Northern Ireland. That really is very very worrying, Pat, isn't it? And obviously, it's a complete political mess in Northern Ireland. The the discussion has been completely politicised, which is never really a good thing in Northern Ireland. And and we're seeing the outcome of that. Um, is there anything at all that the government can do on this side of the border? I get no sense that there is a willingness or uh, to address this particular issue. And I think it'll get um, I I think it'll get worse, particularly if they open the boozers in. Uh, uh, in Northern Ireland, which they intend to do, and pubs remain closed uh, down here. I think you'll see very significant cross-border traffic uh, to avail of this facility, and um, inevitably that will uh, that will reimport the virus uh, back into uh, into border counties. But I I I don't get the sense that there is um, that there is any agenda in government to. I mean, 
you know, to tighten border controls, which is the only thing that you could um, uh, that 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 you could do to counteract that. I mean, people aren't supposed to travel between uh, between counties, but there's obviously a lot, an awful lot of uh, cross border traffic going on that will only. Uh, intensify, uh, particularly as I say, amongst young people. If the pubs are open in the north, they're not open. Uh, they're not open here. It isn't hard at all to foresee what's uh, what's going to happen. Then the fear that's expressed, Paul. Let me take this one finally. Is that if there's you know some relaxation, which everybody expects in December, and some allowance made for the the the, the need for for families to get together over the Christmas period itself, and we're then at some version of level three, that the third wave hits. Um, how realistic is that expectation? And given all the other stuff we've talked about, about vaccines and various other kinds of things, can we perhaps start to think, you know, well, by the time the third wave's hit, other the third wave hits, other things will be coming into play, so perhaps we don't need to worry about it so much? Yeah, I've always been of the view, or at least from an early stage in the pandemic, that what we were going to see were successive waves of the virus, but each successive wave would be less onerous or less damaging than the previous one. And so in this second wave, while we've had high case numbers, that's a bad measure of what's going on. We've seen that our hospitals have been able to cope. And uh, for weeks now, the uh, uh, number of patients and the number of patients in ICU have been stable. So I would expect that a third wave would see a further improvement in that because hospitals are learning how better to, to treat patients um, um, younger people are the ones being affected who are less likely to become seriously ill and there, there are various new uh, ways of, uh, of protecting and, and, and minimising cases. Um, so I think there is, there is reason for hope. There's a specific play of time with the vaccine being developed and uh, you know it is the unspoken policy of government to, uh, to sustain these repeated waves I think and then hope for a vaccine. Um, so I think what from my tuppence worth is what's going to happen is we will see some lo- uh, loosening of restrictions from the 1st of December, um, p- possibly shops, uh, so as to encourage uh, uh, tr- commerce and so on. And there will be restrictions on movement, which, of course, encourages shop local, so that can be sold in that way. Um, and then you go back to remember when Christmas had 12 days in it. And uh, I think then you will see uh, a further loosening for the core period of Christmas to allow uh, something approaching a normal Christmas for for people, maybe with some restrictions on how many people can be in your house and so on like that. And then we will pay for that to some extent um, uh, after in the new year. And how much we pay depends on how how far our case numbers start to rise again. Um, But we do know better how to control things. So then in coping with the on uh, the arrival of a third wave. So we have, um, hopefully we're, we're going from a lower level. We know what measures, uh, what restrictions work and what levels can be uh, fine-tuned to, to make things come under control. We have better ways of dealing with patients in hospitals and then we have the prospect of a vaccine coming on. So uh, taking that, we, we might just have two and a half waves and then this thing might be over. Yeah, Pat, I was quite taken by a statement from the um, the, the president of Germany's disease, disease control body um, yesterday, where, and I'm quoting from the German here for you, we have to clench our butt cheeks together for another couple of months yet. Uh, people girding their loins in government buildings for that? <laughs> let, let us all together clench our buttocks one more time <laughs> in, in the hope, in the hope of suppressing the virus. <laughs> I knew you'd like that. <laughs> I, I, I think they should put that on Christmas cards, uh, Hugh. Let us all 
clench our buttocks together in a seasonal fashion and uh, perhaps, you know, perhaps families could get together and clench their buttocks together. On that convivial note, we will leave it. Thanks very much indeed to, to, to Pat and to Paul. Thanks to our producer, Suzanne Brennan. And remember, if you want to get in touch with us, we are always delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. <laughs>